This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm your host, Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Today we are talking immigration with Miguel Andrade from Juntos and Golnas Fakimi, the immigrants' rights attorney for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Last month, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of Ivan Nunez Martinez, a gay man and native of Mexico who lives in Chester County with his husband, Paul. Ivan was detained by ICE in January during a routine interview with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Juntos has been organizing around his case since he was detained, and on May 22nd, the ACLU of PA and volunteer attorneys from the law firm DLA Piper filed in federal court for his release. In this conversation, Miguel Golnaz and I discuss Ivan's case and broader issues around immigration. Later, we're doing something new, our first crossover episode. I was recently invited by the folks at the Midtown Cinema in Harrisburg to participate in a discussion about the new documentary RBG for their podcast, The Brain Wrap. Think of it as being like the Flash and Arrow crossovers, but without the cool costumes or the ability to run fast. That's coming up later, but first, let's hear from Miguel and Golnaz. This interview was recorded on May 29th. Miguel and Golnaz, thank you both for joining me to talk about this case and talk about what's happening in uh, immigration advocacy broadly. Uh, Miguel, I'm wondering if you could start. Just talk a little bit about what Juntos does and what your work is like there as communications manager. Sure, absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. So I work here at Juntos, which is an immigrant rights uh, advocacy organization based out of Philadelphia, but we do work at the citywide and also statewide level and nationwide with, a, with the help of a few other national coalitions. But I would say the bulk of the work that we do is a lot of you know, uh, immigrant rights advocacy, so fighting for pro-immigration legislation and against anti-immigrant sentiment and, and legislation. And we also do a lot of um, what we internally call deportation defense, which translates into a lot of community training, letting people know what their rights are with immigration and the police, letting people know what it is that they can and can't do to prevent them from falling into the deportation process. Um, and then we also do a lot of um, case support. So as the cases with Ivan, there are specific cases that we, we receive um, notice of that we kind of feel like it makes sense to highlight either because the details of the particular case are really egregious or they really highlight a sense of like intersectional work and organizing, as is the case with Ivan's um, particular case. Um, and then in terms of like my work as communications manager at the organization is just dealing with a lot of the press work, press releases, making sure that anything that comes out of the organization sort of like falls in line with uh, our mission and just, you know, overall communication, so handling the social media of the organization, reaching out to community, and just making sure that the work and power of the people that we work with is accurately portrayed in, in, in the media. All right, Miguel, I'm glad you brought up uh, the intersectionality with LGBTQ equality because I do want to talk about that and we'll come back to that in a few moments. Um, but Golnaz, I wonder if you can say a little bit um, first about what Ivan's life has been like in the United States. Uh, we know that he um, is married. Um, can you say a little more detail about um, his time here um, since he came to, uh, to our country? 
Sure. Um, so uh, Iran has been in the United States altogether for nearly 17 years. From what I understand from him and from his husband Paul, that you know he, he's led a very sort of normal uh, existence in the United States. It's been marked by a lot of hard, hard work. So you know, before being detained, he was working full time at an auto body repair shop. Before that, you know, he worked for I think upwards of 13 years uh, for a janitorial services company that uh, worked in areas struck by disaster. He came to the United States initially because of a fear of persecution in Mexico on account of his sexual orientation. He's a gay man. Um, and I think that, you know, he, he would say that his time in the United States in large part has been marked by a feeling of gratitude for the relative safety with which he's been able to live his life here as an openly gay man. And I think it's because of that that, you know, he was able to encounter Paul Frame, you know, the man he, he eventually married. They met in 2014, got married in 2016. So I, I think he, he's led a very full life, a very productive and peaceful life here. Um, and he's been here for quite a long time. So, Miguel, you talked about uh, the fact that Juntos does uh, what you call deportation defense. You get involved in particularly egregious cases and you get involved in cases um, that involves uh, intersectionality with other issues. Can you talk a little bit about um, the organizing work that Juntos has done um, since uh, around this case since Yvonne was detained? Sure. I mean, when it was brought to our attention back in January, we kind of like it was like a red flag immediately. Um, you know, one that there was no reason that we saw, you know, as an organization that Yvonne should be in ICE custody to begin with. And then two, that it was such a, a clear inter- intersection of these two sort of like, you know, congruent movements that are happening right now in this country. So we were very purposeful of reaching out to other, um, specifically LGBT uh, rights organizations. So we reached out to Galay here in Philadelphia, which is a local uh, Latinx immigrant rights queer organization, as well as the William Way LGBT Center here in Philadelphia, because we just, there was just a clear parallel in terms of like the persecution that sort of both communities either have been facing or are facing right now. And there was just, um, it just seemed to click. When, when, you, when you thought about it, like here is a, a gay immigrant who has fled, you know, his homeland because of fear of persecution. And instead of being, you know, welcomed with like, you know, quote unquote, open arms, he's being targeted and detained by the federal government, the government of the country, which he specifically fled to for his own safety. There was just sort of like a, uh, a hypocrisy in that that we kind of saw that we really needed to sort of elevate in this particular case. And how often do you see that, Miguel? How often do you see um, immigration cases and situations that impact LGBTQ people? And what, what are the unique challenges um, that LGBTQ immigrants face because of their sexual orientation or gender identity? Yeah, I mean, we don't necessarily get a lot of uh, specific LGBT cases at Juntos, either because Maybe we're not getting them, or maybe people are just not comfortable with letting us in on that particular aspect of their case. But I mean, some of the main instances, I mean, the last few cases that we've seen around that have have had sort of this combo, it's always the idea of like fleeing some, fleeing your homeland, like where you're from, your family, your friends, due to fear of persecution for your identity, for your sexual orientation, and then being persecuted here again in the United States by the federal government all because of the lack of a, of a you know, piece of paper, right? 
I think some of the, the difficulties of it is that also because of lack of information, a lot of people who you know might potentially be eligible for either asylum or other forms of relief due to because of their fear of um, you know retaliation because of their orientation back home, they might I know that they might be eligible. So they don't really even learn about these possible venues until they end up within ICE mm -hmm. custody. And now it's even harder. I mean, it was hard before to advocate apply for something while being in detention. I think under the new administration, it's a lot harder to actually be able to push uh, for any form of relief. So, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that they have those options until they're sort of in that process. All right, so Yvonne has been in York County Prison since the end of January. Uh, ACLU, he does have immigration representation, um, and now the ACLU is involved with cooperating counsel. Uh, Golnas, can you say uh, a little bit about what is the legal argument for getting him out? Sure. We've brought a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in federal district court, um, and our goal is to make it clear to the court that there's no uh, lawful basis for Yvonne's detention, um, and his detention is unnecessary as a matter of fact as well. So, you know, for as long as Yvonne is fighting his immigration court case, uh, which could take quite a long time, it could take a matter of many more months or even years, um, you know, this question of whether he needs to be detained or whether the law requires that he be detained is, is an important one, because for as long as he's detained, his ability to participate in um, his own uh, uh, defense against deportation in the immigration court case is impacted. Um, you know, his own, uh, I think, uh, well-being suffers, the well-being of his husband suffers. Um, you know, there are a lot of consequences that flow from detention. Um, and when it's unlawful detention, when it's unnecessary detention, you know, that's something that concerns us as the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and so that's why we, we're on this case. And this case seems, based on other anecdotes we've heard, uh, that this case seems indicative of what's been happening the last year and a half, that, you know, Ivan has lived a relatively quiet life uh, here in the United States. Um, he had a very compelling reason for uh, leaving his home country. Um, and now here he is in immigration detention. Um, I'm wondering, and, and obviously, Miguel, at Juntos, you, you all are right there in the middle of the community um, working with folks. I'm wondering if both of you can talk a little bit about, um, number one, what you're seeing is happening to uh, immigrant families and communities, and for folks who are able, um, what kind of action steps they can take to be supportive, both uh, Yvonne and uh, on immigration in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, what's interesting about, you know, doing sort of immigrant rights work in Philadelphia is that it has sort of become, there's been a sort of sort of national spotlight when it comes to immigration in Philadelphia in ways that I've never seen before in my uh, couple of years doing this work. I mean, there was the recent ProPublica article that happened maybe about a month ago. Basically, it was a joint investigation between ProPublica and the Philadelphia Inquirer that basically called the local Philadelphia ICE agent, agency uh, and field office as the, quote, most aggressive one in the country. It's a very sort of like tall claim to, to make around a, a specific agency, but I think ad juntos is definitely something that we are seeing on the ground. We have seen an, an, an uptick in, this, in, the, in the forms of like arrests that ICE agents are doing, the, the different tactics that people are using. 
uh, that agents are using to actually get to community members, such as using some of the city's own databases, like the PARS database, to actually get access to the people's uh, addresses to be able to show up and detain them. I think what's been really interesting at the same time is that I think the community has been, or the immigrant community has been organizing and for so long, but it, got, it has gotten to this point where people actually are actively looking out for each other when it comes to like immigration raids. I mean, there was just the, the raid that was announced that was um, acknowledged by ICE a couple of days ago that happened here in Philadelphia. And here at Juntos, I can honestly say that the amount of calls and messages that we got about ICE presence in the community sort of like tripled uh, our usual numbers. But it was community members themselves saying like, hey, I saw an ICE agent. They're, you know, they're normally not around my block. Something might be happening. Or, hey, I see them. Uh, they're, at my, they're at the corner and it looks like they're looking for somebody or they're going around knocking on doors. So there's a sort of sense of communal surveillance that has really sort of um, taken hold within the immigrant community. And that's when we talk, that's what we mean when we talk about deportation defense. It's not just about what can community members do to sort of protect themselves from entering deportation proceedings, but how can people protect each other as a community? So on that end, in terms of like the ways that people can support this, um, Obviously, Juntas is a small nonprofit organization. Feel free to reach out, volunteer, potentially donate if possible. Um, but also uh, check out different trainings that we might be doing. We're actually about to be going statewide this weekend. Actually, we'll be out in Pittsburgh, and then the weekend after that, we'll be in Harrisburg doing uh, community resistance zones and deportation defense trainings with different advocates and community members who want to sort of implement that model. So if you're out in the Pittsburgh area, feel free to check us out on Facebook and find out exactly uh, where that training is going to be. And Golnaz, what, what about from our offices and what we're seeing come through our doors? Are we, um, what's your perspective on, um, you know, the way things have been the last year and a half? I think that uh, what Gail has highlighted with respect to Philadelphia, it, it applies to the uh, entirety of the state of Pennsylvania. So the Philadelphia Field Office of ICE, which the ProPublica article named as being the most aggressive uh, in, in the country, it's in charge of immigration enforcement across Pennsylvania, also in Delaware and West Virginia. And we've heard you know, countless reports through a, a lot of different uh, channels of problematic direct ICE enforcement actions in, in lots of different parts of the state. You know, I, I think that the uh, reports that we've been hearing about in terms of quantity and frequency, uh, it's very different from prior to Trump's taking office. You know, that's not to say that uh, the Obama administration wasn't undertaking immigration enforcement in an aggressive way. It was. Uh, you know, President Obama earned the nickname of the deporter-in-chief for having deported more people than any prior president or administration. But um, I think under President Trump, really on the ground, what, what uh, community-based organizations or what organizations like ours are seeing, really, it feels different. Uh, it feels escalated and amplified. Um, and I think that in terms of community-based responses and ways of resisting um, what, what we've been seeing on the ground, you know, I think that Know Your Rights uh, awareness and trainings are a huge part of, uh, of, of an effective resistance. And then I think that there are, there are other ways of resisting, too. Um, and I think that uh, organizations like Juntos working uh, together with community members are sort of pushing the envelope in a great way about 
ways of resisting that aren't just reactive and responsive and defensive, but proactive and empowering. I think I'm hopeful that we'll see more and and more of that in, in communities around the state. So going on, you know, whenever we file a case, uh, we make a big splash when it gets filed and then um, it quiets down until the next uh, bit of news happens. Um, what is the next step in the legal process in Yvonne's case? So since the petition was filed, you know, the uh, case has been assigned to a magistrate judge and to a district court judge. Um, I, I think that uh, what we can expect is in a matter of time for the government to put in its response to the uh claims that we've made. Um, and from there, uh, I think it's a little bit of a wait and see. It may be that a hearing will be ordered. Uh, it may be that we'll need to take some extra measures to uh, uh, try to escalate the timetable on which the case is reviewed. Um, but I think for now, uh, probably the next step will be to see if the government puts in a, a response of some kind. All right. Well, Golnaz and Miguel, thank you both very much for joining me today. Hopefully uh, the next time we talk, it will be because uh, Yvonne has been freed. Absolutely. One of the other things that people can do in the meantime is that we did sort of start a call to action campaign for people who might be listening who want to support this particular case. Uh, We're actually asking people to call ICE directly and say that they're calling on behalf of Yvonne um, and basically advocating for his release. So people can call 267-479-3696 and say that they're calling on behalf of Jose Ivan Nunez, whose A number is 099-475-935, and basically advocate and say that as a community member, you wish for uh, this particular individual to be freed and to fight his, his, his case on the outside with his, his loving husband. Thanks for that, Miguel. And thanks also for everything that, uh, that you and everybody at Juntos does. The Juntos and the ACLU of Pennsylvania have been allies for a long time. And uh, it's uh, unfortunate that we have to team up for this reason, but I'm glad we have the chance to team up for it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you to Miguel and Golnaz for taking the time to talk about Yvonne's case. Miguel mentioned the deportation defense trainings that Juntos is hosting. Juntos and the Pennsylvania Immigration and Citizenship Coalition will host those trainings in Harrisburg on June 23rd and in Philadelphia on July 7th. Links to more information about those trainings are available in the show notes. Let's talk about RBG. The ACLU of Pennsylvania recently had the chance to co-host screenings of this new documentary about the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In this segment, I sat down with Abby Tierney, a co-owner of the Midtown Cinema in Harrisburg, and Lauren Hartley Martin of Dickinson School of Law in Carlisle. We talked about our reactions to the film, the ongoing battles for women's equality, and why this film is resonating so much at this moment. This discussion was produced by the Midtown Cinema and originally appeared on their podcast, The Brain Wrap, which can be found on the various podcast apps. It was recorded on May 25th. I'm Abby Tierney, and I'm an attorney who is not practicing at the moment, and I'm part of the ownership of the Midtown Cinema. So I was thrilled to bring RBG to Harrisburg through the Midtown Cinema. Yeah, I'm Lauren Hartley-Martin. I'm an attorney. I'm on staff at Dickinson Law in Carlisle. 
So I work in our career services office, and I'm also the assistant director of our Center for Public Interest Advocacy in the law. Um, I'm also a member of the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Commission for Women in the Profession, and I'm the membership co-chair for that organization. And I'm Andy Hoover. I'm the director of communications at the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania. I've been there 13 years, uh, spent nine years lobbying the state legislature, and now I'm in communications. I am not a lawyer. Uh, people think if you're from the ACLU, you must be a lawyer, but we do have a few non-lawyers on our staff, too. Let's start with just general reactions to the movie. I thought it was a wonderfully humanizing portrait of this person. Uh, I think the Supreme Court can feel like this very aloof thing and entity that just kind of hands on edicts, hands down edicts from on high. Um, and you usually only hear about it when you disagree with them or agree with them, either way. Um, I mean, in, in 2018, and people communicate via Snapchat, and the Supreme Court doesn't even allow photographers <laughs> in during arguments. Um, so I thought this film did a really great job of showing you the person in the robe, right, and, and giving us a picture of uh, who she is and how she's gotten there, and the human who is a grandmother who uh, was beloved by her husband and loved her husband, who works very hard, who planks and works out. Um, kind of a complete picture of a human being as well as a legal scholar. So I really appreciated that about the film. Yeah, it's a great point because one of the things I found working with elected officials is sometimes in the public realm, in the public eye, they get a bit dehumanized. And when you connect with them personally, you do realize, oh yeah, these are people who are, you know, have a personal life and personal interests, and it's just a reminder of the fact that, you know, we're all human beings. And as you said, Lauren, that this movie in particular, um, related to Justice Ginsburg, definitely showed that. Uh, my reactions were twofold: one as a parent, and one as an advocate. As a parent, um, I felt like everybody should take their kids to see this movie um, if their kids are of an age where they can comprehend it. Um, it's just so important for young people to know what things were like as Justice Ginsburg was coming up through school, um, her experiences in law school as one of the few women uh, at her law school, and that things were much different 40 plus years ago for women in the workplace. Uh, my daughter was actually with us when we went to see it. She's 15. My other reaction was uh, as an advocate, there's a point in the movie where they talk about how um, Justice Ginsburg was really focused on, as a lawyer, using the law and legal advocacy as a means to change. And as someone who's done advocacy for a long time, you know, I've always felt like advocacy and social change really is a big tent with multiple poles. Uh, you have the legal work, you have policy advocacy, um, there's grassroots organizing, there's electoral work. You take down one of those poles and your tent starts to sag, and they're all equally important. Um, she was really focused on how do I use legal advocacy in the courts to make the change that I want. And I was familiar with her activity on the bench, but I was less familiar with her um, impact through her years of early practice. And certainly the, the, what she faced even attending law school when she arrived there uh, was uh, confirmed stories that I had heard. Yes, things have absolutely changed. But even in my time as a young lawyer in the early 90s, um, I faced situations where people would say, oh, honey, who's secretary are you? And never assume that I was counsel. So I think, you know, what she began and really uh, 
got to in terms of gender, the rest of us are continuing to push and carry and uh, move that change forward. Yeah. She, as, uh, as an employee of the ACLU, of course, we're all very proud of the fact that she, she was uh, one of our former staffers and the founder of the Women's Rights Project, which exists to this day. Our national office has projects based on issues and uh, the Women's Rights Project still going strong. Um, we've actually worked with them on cases here in Pennsylvania, including one in uh, Montgomery County a number of years back where the local town, Norristown, had an ordinance that um, would require um, tenants to be evicted if there were three police calls from a property. And our client is a domestic violence victim. And um, when her boyfriend showed up and she had to call and, and um, violence against her she had to call the police again it was the third time and because of this ordinance um, they were going to evict her and we fought it um, saying that this is a first amendment issue you have a right to petition the government and uh, we won unfortunately this the legislature also changed the law um, so I just I, and we worked with our women's rights project on that on that case so mm -hmm. you know the work continues um, and you know we're just all really proud of the fact that Justice Ginsburg was there at the start mm -hmm. I think people assume in these polarized political times that, you know, the notorious RBG would be a sweeping activist from the bench. And I think the, sh the movie also showed that she really started out as a centrist mm -hmm. and very much a consensus builder. And um, oftentimes what she writes from the bench is guidance for the legislature as to how they can change the law with a full respect of, you know, all three branches and the role of the legislature in really the largest creation of wide sweeping law as opposed to case specific law. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's um, an interesting kind of extension of, of her work. Um, so she very early on, um, there was a, a case about reproductive rights that she wanted to bring. And actually they started to bring to the Supreme Court. It was a young woman uh, who was a nurse in the Air Force, and she was actually serving in Vietnam, and she got pregnant, she wasn't married. Uh, and at the time, if you wanted to continue serving in the Air Force, you, well, you were either discharged, or if you wanted to continue to serve, you could have an abortion. This was before Roe v. Wade, so it was one of the only places in the country when abortion was legal, but that was the choice. You could not carry a child. She knew that because they had told her when she signed up, when she was 23, that that is what would happen. So she was in Vietnam, hid her pregnancy until she was seven and a half months pregnant. She was working 12, 16-hour shifts. She was dealing with soldiers on the front lines. And then finally, she couldn't hide it anymore. And her uh, supervisor immediately sent her back to the States. She was discharged. Uh, and then uh, started working with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they went to take the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually granted cert, but then the Air Force changed its policy before they could, the case could come to them because um, they kind of knew this was coming up the pike. But she said, and reflecting on that case, she really wanted one of the first reproductive rights cases to come before the court to be a case that said you had the right to keep your child if you wanted it, which is kind of not how it ended up being, right? So Roe v. Wade was the big case we know was that you had no right to abortion, right to an abortion. She wanted the case to say, you have a right to choose either way. And I want it to be that you can choose to have your child. Um, and she did that a lot in her advocacy, right? So that the, the Weissenfeld case, she chose a male. Mm -hmm. She chose a male widower 
uh, as her plaintiff because she wanted to show uh, how discrimination affects both not just women but both sides. And I think it was really interesting when she said, I felt like a kindergarten teacher. Because so often, and when she means by that, so often she was just explaining what it meant practically in someone's life. So her opinions are not, um, they're not known for being particularly like witty or fun to read. Like when you're in law school, if you were reading a Scalia opinion or a Scalia dissent, you know that you knew that was going to be full of like witty things. And even if you didn't agree with them, they were kind of fun to read. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's opinions were known for being very analytical, straightforward, maybe a little bit dry, but at the beginning always started with the very practical implications on someone's life. Mm-hmm. So I think that was that was really important for her advocacy and for her legal strategy to explain the practical impact of what this law meant. Um, and then you could create change in incrementally in that way uh, was really crucial to her strategy and it was really smart. Uh, it worked. Yeah, incrementalism is really important, uh, and whether it's in legislative and policy advocacy or it's in uh, legal advocacy, and and picking the right cases, which is an, an ongoing tension in organizations like ours. Um, you know, we understand and see particular communities that are impacted by issues. You know, there are so many issues we'd like to challenge and bring up and take to court, but you have to really be thoughtful and strategic about when is the right time, uh, which is the right case, when are the facts right. Um, and it's something that we always have to weigh, and it's exactly what you're describing. Um, the whole issue around marriage equality was a good example, where for years um, there were lawyers out there who wanted to bring various challenges, and the feeling was this, the court, the situation in the courts just wasn't quite there. And then when the opportunity came to challenge the Federal Defense of Marriage Act um, with Edie Windsor, that was seen as a chance to open the door to, okay, we can establish that parts of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act are unconstitutional. And if we get the kind of opinion we want, that could be an opportunity then to wedge in and get full marriage equality. So that kind of strategy is always ongoing in uh, organizations, public interest law organizations, and obviously Justice Ginsburg was thinking like that when, yeah. she, was, when she was active. And started, and that case was a very practical case about whether or not someone had equal rights to their partner's you know, benefits after the other partner's right. death, right? So it was very practical daily life implications of this law. She didn't go for immediately a case that said, we must have full equal protection, we must have it now. Right. You look at the case and you say, well, of course it's That's not right. fair. That's of course it's mm-hmm. not fair that that person doesn't get their you know, uh, partner's benefits. Or, of course it's not fair. Well, and, and the facts of that was you had a young father with, right. with an orphaned mm-hmm. child who mm-hmm. chose for eight months to be home with that child. Right. Um, so the facts were, if they couldn't understand that. Right, right. Um, and, the, and the other case she mentioned about the, the young woman in the Air Force, so another... I think it's also smart. She was working with people who were in the Air Force, women in the Air Force, because uh, you want to support your military members, right? So I think that was also smart. Um, but she basically found out that she wasn't making as much money as her male colleagues because she wasn't getting the housing allowance. And she was for her spouse. And the reason was, well, you're a woman. The presumption being that your husband was going to go off and work himself, and why would you need a housing allowance for him? Um, so a- another interesting very practical, like mm-hmm. 
this affects my daily budget. This is our monthly rent. This is, this is, you can, and I think that makes, when you say about being a kindergarten teacher, she says it about being a kindergarten teacher, like you can put those pieces together pretty clearly. I, I think you can almost think of like a pie chart of someone's monthly budget and what, see what that means right away. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very practical strategy. Mm-hmm. The other reaction uh, I had to the film was the collegiality that she had with people that often are on the opposite sides of opinions than she is. Um, Justice Scalia specifically, they had a very good relationship, um, enjoyed, I think, intellectual sparring and socializing. um, And uh, I think it's a lesson to all of us that uh, just because you don't agree with someone doesn't mean that you can't find common ground because we always need to be trying to find common ground. Um, that was, I think, one of her attributes. Yeah, that's something I saw at the legislature when I was lobbying there is that you, there were members who understood, hey, these are the folks I have to work with. Um, and sometimes I might need them to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others who just aren't quite there. I would imagine the judicial branch probably has similar um, dynamics from court to court, um, depending upon where you are. But you're right. I think that her ability to um, build that kind of relationship with um, Justice Scalia um, is fascinating. And there were opinions where they were together. I I can think of one in particular where the civil liberties case unfortunately ended up on the losing side. Um, It was a case around DNA collection of people who've been arrested, um, a case out of Maryland. And... um, it was Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Scalia in the dissent um, arguing for privacy rights, and Justice Scalia actually wrote the opinion. Um, mm. But there were times when you know, you'd know you see that, that crossover, particularly on Fourth Amendment issues, where some conservatives have a more libertarian or civil libertarian approach to those kinds of issues. And uh, you know, I don't know what goes on inside, uh, inside the courthouse and you know, when they're when they're all meeting and talking, but I would imagine, I would assume that that kind of personal relationship is really important in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they had known each other for a very long time because they had been on the D.C. Court of Appeals together mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. they were both on the Supreme Court. So Ginsburg was appointed to the D.C. Court of Appeals in 1980. So she was in D.C. going to opera with Antonin Scalia for 25 years. Um, by the by, the time he died, mm. and even m- more than ten years before she even got on the bench, and I don't remember which year he came on, but I think it was shortly thereafter. So she was a Carter appointment on the DC Circuit. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. As the movie touched on, he was very intentional about uh, diversity within mm-hmm. the federal judiciary, which is great. So here in uh, Pennsylvania, the first federal judge on the Middle District is Judge Sylvia Rambo who's a graduate of Dickinson College. We're very proud of her. She was the first woman to serve on the bench, Cumberland County Court of Common Pleas, in the late 1970s, and then was appointed to the federal judiciary. So she was the first woman to serve here in the Middle District. And she's still serving. She took senior judge status in 2000, 2001, and still on the bench and carries a docket that is uh, quite heavy and puts out almost as many opinions as some of the other full judges. Which also I was thought was so interesting about about Ginsburg about how she uh, burns the candle at both ends that she'll just stay at working till four in the morning, and then and then go to court the next day, which I just thought was incredible. It's like I 
I'm sleepy by 10.30. <laughs> well, but as a working mom I, in this film, I could very much relate to you do your work, you come home, there's a chunk of time that you don't, and you do your family time, mm-hmm. kids go to bed, and then you're back at work again if you're trying to make it all work. Um, and, and that definitely was part of her model. And Marty just, may we all have one, right, you know, yeah. to be able to make that happen. And he was he was famously the family cook, as they said, her her children who liked food exiled her from the kitchen. But this is amazing to me that people can do that, and that was one of the things I was in awe of watching the movie. Is just I come home after a day of dealing with the latest news <laughs> and trying to impact the news, and you know I got to put it down. Um, and just the fact that I know there are people out there like that. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg it shows in the movie. She's like that. Um, the ability to just keep going um, is amazing. Well, you can tell it. I mean, it, it is clearly her passion. You know, that and, and her family really seem to be what are her some of her greatest passions. Mm-hmm. And she must have a killer sense of humor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it was so true when they said she kind of looked at Marty kind of adoringly. And she really does. Like, she's just, it seems like she's just waiting for him to make a joke and to laugh at it. And she was a little bit like that with Scalia, too. Just mm-hmm. these big personalities and big people. And she's so happy to just be with them. Which I think is so interesting about her. Because, so, growing up, she took the bench when I was six years old. I didn't really have any conception of who she was. Um, my family was fairly conservative. And so, if we talked about her at all, it would have been that she was liberal and we didn't agree with her. But at that time also she was in that, that period where she was very much a consensus builder and, and wasn't dissenting. So I don't think she really entered my consciousness until uh, the notorious RBG meme happened, which was between my first and second year of law school. Um, so it was kind of prime time for her. And she, it was sparked because she had started writing this series of kind of impassioned dissents that they hadn't been seen from her in a while. So her, her opinions had known for being, when she wrote a dissent, it was, or her opinion, it was, or a majority opinion, they were usually very methodical. They weren't really flashy or kind of notable, really. Uh, and then the summer when Hobby Lobby came out and some of the other cases, she kind of started writing with a little bit more um, panache or uh, passion than in previous times. And so there was more, more and more she was in the news. People were reading her opinions again. I think people didn't really read them for a while, uh, but people were reading her opinions. And so now uh, I'm a 2015 law school grad. Every female young lawyer and attorney I know, they may not agree with her, but they know who she is. And they've seen the meme in The Crown and probably seen the SNL skit and, and know that she is this this legend or saw her fall asleep at the State of the Union. <laughs> Uh, I actually got to see her speak at a conference last year. Well, I say see, but I I was in the overflow ballroom, so next door. But it was a conference for public interest, and it was full of young women and men. Men, We had students from our law school who came just to see her, Mm -hmm. um, just to hear her speak. And it's so funny. She is. She's this tiny little 85-year-old Jewish lady who wears gloves. Who wears gloves? (laughs) To stay healthy, or because oh, she just wears for her, fashion. She wears for her fashion, little, she, for propriety. Oh, nice. She wears That's lovely. Yeah, and I know she mentioned in the movie. Um, she, sh- I love when she shows the closet with all of her collars, yeah, and all of her lace pieces. So that one um, silver kind of piece, she says, "This is what I wear when I wear descents." For descents, uh-huh. yeah. It's called her descent collar, and you can actually buy uh, pins and necklaces oh, that hurt. are her descent collar, and she specifically wears it. 
on the days that she descends. When she reads the descent, that's the collar that she wears. So you know she's going to have something to say. Lauren, when you say about seeing her speak, that reminded me of something from the movie that I thought was really cool. Was when she, there's a scene where she is giving a talk, and beforehand they interviewed three young women in the lobby, and one of them says something like, to be this close to Justice Ginsburg, it's just going to be overwhelming or something like that. And it was just like, wow, that's just, it was amazing that, you know, here were these young people who were just so excited about seeing um, Justice Ginsburg. The other thing that I think was interesting, I was thinking about this even before when I came in to watch it, she got 96 votes for confirmation as a Supreme Court justice. You know, we just went through a period where the Senate ended the filibuster so they could confirm uh, justice with 51 votes. Um, it's amazing to think back. And as as polarized and as challenging as things were in the 90s, I remember it. I remember um, the way Bill Clinton was treated, the way Hillary Clinton was treated. Um, the fact that she got 96 votes for a confirmation yeah, it's hard to imagine any justice or any judge for the lower courts getting 96 votes today. We're just not in that place right now, unfortunately. And it is interesting because they did talk about President Carter's desire for for diversity mm-hmm. on the bench for uh, just an over-understanding of the issues that the court will face, not for any other political agenda. Um, and I think I think that's part of where we may not see those numbers again because mm-hmm. I think they're looking for outcomes as opposed to fairness. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I thought it was so interesting in the, the clips that they showed in the movie. She really talked at length about her record of cases and her you know, legal theory mm-hmm. and her you know, rationale, why she was in her legal strategy. I can't imagine anyone going before a judiciary and answering questions in that detail and actually talking about cases and legal strategy with pride. Mm-hmm. And especially ones that had anything to do that were partisan at all. I mean, her line of cases was very much feminist. And to see any judge that would be that uh, partisan about anything, I just I just don't know if you would you'd see it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you were looking up the, the box office numbers earlier and it's, it's, it's really interesting how this film seems to be resonating with people and people are coming out to watch it. Absolutely. We're definitely seeing that locally. We've had it for a week. Our seatings aren't large. Our largest theater is just over 120. And um, we've had 794 tickets sold wow. as of, uh, you know, without just being at a week's time. Uh, but I think overall in the country, it is definitely, definitely exploding. I mean, it started with a limited release and is going wider than they ever anticipated. And uh, they talked about, as of Friday, earning uh, $4.5 million, which for a documentary, um, documentaries are one of the reasons I love the cinema, because you can learn so much about things that you don't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. And they're hard sells sometimes for audiences and filmmakers. Um, and this is a perfect example. This is the summer of great documentaries. This is a perfect example of the right movie at the right time. And uh, it's coming out right before a movie about Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. So perhaps this is the summer of civility among do- the, these documentaries. But uh, yes, I think we're just beginning to see what this movie can do at this point. And in your point about films being a medium for teaching is really interesting for me as a student of advocacy and social change and 
I'm curious to hear you say a little more about that. As a as a cinema person, as the owner of Midtown Cinema, like your take on the impact of the arts on social change. Oh, I'll give you an example. Earlier this summer, we had uh, a tiny film. We're part of a national group of art house cinemas, so we get notice of some interesting films. It was called Love and Bananas, and there's a podcast, a previous podcast, about it. And it had to do with a conservationist in Thailand saving Asian elephants. Mm. And I knew nothing about that, but I, it sounded this is something we need to know about and um it was the most glorious film there's just just amazing conservationist that is doing work in thailand that started with a single um incident and has i mean rescue that has blossomed into when you look at the numbers of how many places that elephants were used in hard labor that are now sanctuaries it's astounding to see what she's done and it was a u.s actress who, um, and filmmaker, who went and uh, made that documentary. And it's places like this that are going to get that word out. And I know some people, you know, are, are watching things like this on like Netflix and other things. Sure. But to sit in an audience with a film like that and feel the sense of community and the important work that's being done, there's just nothing like it. Yeah. Some documentaries that came out last year, so 13th, about the 13th Amendment, and then how the... You know, prison system and prison uh, school to prison pipeline has really affected uh, black men in particular in the black community. So it's absolutely a part of the cultural conversation. But And I think the power of documentaries is what you see in this, is how personal it makes it. And I actually thought it was interesting that the documentary didn't even touch on some of, uh, some of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's early experiences with discrimination herself. So when she was just married uh, after Cornell, she and Marty moved to Oklahoma because he was in the military. He did two years in the army. And she went to go get a job and got a job at the local social security administration. And she happened to be pregnant at the time. A few weeks into her job said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm three months pregnant. She was demoted and then told that she wasn't going to have these other responsibilities for certain route travel that other people would do. There was another woman in her office who was also pregnant who didn't tell anyone until much later. Uh, and did not experience that. Later, of course, the film touched on the discrimination she would have had in Harvard's classroom, with being so few women. And then at Columbia, when she graduated, she was tied for first in her class, and she couldn't get a job at a New York law firm. The film didn't say what happened next, so the job that she got was with a federal district judge in the Southern District of New York, which is one of the very important districts for corporate and financial litigation, so it's a very good clerkship to have. She got the clerkship because one of her Columbia Law professors called up the judge and said, I have this student, she's fantastic, you know, tied for person in class, you've got to take her, and if you don't, I will never recommend a student to you again. <laughs> and if she doesn't work out, I'll have someone else line up for you. Like, that was how she got her first job. Um, and so she did that for two years. But it took another, you know, professor, a white man, you know, calling another white man to stand up for her. And, the top in her class, if you're number one at Columbia Law, you should have the pick of any job you want. Um, and she couldn't get hired. And then later uh, at Rutgers, when she was on faculty at Rutgers, when she was pregnant with her second child, uh, she was a junior faculty member and she had a year to year contract. And she was one of the very few women on legal faculties at the time. And 
knew what might happen. And so throughout the spring semester, while she was going through the process of you know approving contracts for the next year, she did not tell anyone that she was pregnant. She went to her mother-in-law, who was a very stylish lady, she said, but a size was bigger than her, and borrowed a bunch of her clothes, and wore those clothes throughout the spring semester. And then at the end of the semester, after contracts have been renewed for the next year, then at a faculty meeting, let her colleagues know, hey, just so you know, when I come back in the fall, we're going to have a new addition to the family. <laughs> and then she gave birth a few weeks before the semester started, came back on. But she, and at that time, she was already practicing as a lawyer. She was already working on some of these issues. Um, and she herself knew that it would be dangerous to her job to let them know that she was expecting another child. Of course, she came back and then, you know, killed it. And they kept her on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a question. Yeah. And unfortunately, these are issues that continue to this day. Uh, the ACLU is actually part of a campaign called the Pennsylvania Campaign for Women's Health. It's a collaboration of 60 organizations pushing for a variety of bills at the state legislature. One of them is workplace accommodation for pregnant women, ensuring that pregnant women have uh, accommodations within the workplace that are necessary. Such, you know, as an example, you know, if, if a woman has a job where she's standing, there has to be an opportunity to sit. That's House Bill 1583. There's another bill ensuring workplace accommodations for nursing mothers, that they have somewhere reasonable that they can express breast milk. We've seen situations where women end up in a closet somewhere with no chair. You know, it's just outrageous the way some of these employers um, have treated them. Yeah, Um, the Commission on Women in the Profession, so WIP, which I'm part of in the PBA, has been pushing for lactation rooms in courthouses Mm -hmm. so that women who are attorneys or or, or not um, can go and and have that space. And many courthouses have a tradition of having like a lawyer's lounge where back in the day it would have been bunch of men sitting around so kind of hearkening a lot of courthouses don't have it anymore because of space constraints but some still do and so WIP has pushed to establish rooms set aside for for nursing mothers in that context yeah and you know we see this it often has an impact particularly on blue-collar workers um, women working in factories or other retail places where the businesses just have not been quick to catch up with the times. If folks are interested in that campaign, oh, the, there's a website, um, pa4womenshealth.org. That's the number four, pa4womenshealth.org. Um, and they can check out information about that campaign. Abby, I wanted to come back to those box, box office numbers because I think it really says something about where people are right now. It seems that people are really looking for a place to put their energy, and they're looking in multiple places, I should say. Uh, and I, I have no doubt that the times that we're in definitely have, have an impact on um, the box office for this movie. You know, we've seen it in our organization. We've seen our membership jump significantly. We've seen attendance at events jump. We've seen a lot more uh, organizing activity like rallies and, and things of that sort. It just seems like this was another outlet for folks where they can gather with like-minded people and and get out some of that energy maybe that, that, that people are feeling as they're concerned about the state of the country. Oh, I think I think this definitely uh, is the time and we're seeing that, no doubt about it. Yeah. yeah, and I think we're reflecting a little bit that the movie kind of gives us a long view, right, of how far we've come, which is great. Um, and the number of laws that were discriminatory, you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg started her career was just 
incredible um, and it, times have changed a, a lot and have cascaded down to all areas of our lives, which is great. Um, but as I kind of was saying to someone the other day, like, I know it's better than before, but I wasn't there before. So right. it doesn't, now doesn't feel that great. Yeah. <laughs> and I know some people say, well, you should feel good about the progress you made. Well, I wasn't there when it was so bad and I would like it to be better. So, I mean, as a young young woman, a young professional woman, a young female attorney particularly, I look at, um, you know, some numbers nationally. Women are about 25% of state legislators. They're 12% of, of governors. Um, and that's important because governorships are often feeders for state senate and presidencies. Women are about 25% of statewide elected officials. In Pennsylvania, it's much lower. We are statewide elected officials are somewhere in the teens. The Pennsylvania's U.S. congressional delegation contains no women at current. There are 18 members of that delegation. Not a single one is a woman. Uh, that will change in the fall, it looks like, after last week's primaries, but um, that's not great numbers. We do have a fair number of women on our appellate courts and as judges, but statewide, they're only about 20% of state judges. So uh, there's still a long ways to go. Uh, women have been going to undergrad and getting master's degree at rates equal to men for decades now. Uh, only in the last two years did women start enrolling in law school at rates equal to men. And that's not equally distributed across law schools. Uh, women are underrepresented at the top law schools. So at Columbia and Harvard, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg went. So it's something I think about a lot in terms of uh, the long view, right? So we have women, uh, many, many women who are going to law schools now. And I think I think the numbers are similar from that school. I'm not totally sure, but someone in that profession was saying it was somewhat similar. Um, but it's going to take... If you look at generational change and incrementalism, it'll be another, you know, where are we going to be in 15, 20 years? Where will those women be? Will those women, will we have more women on the bench? Will we have more women in our state legislatures? Will we have more women in leadership in, in hospitals and in law firms and in government because of those changes? It's definitely incremental along the way. It's wonderful. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg will absolutely be remembered as a role model, an example of, of young women, and I'm looking forward to seeing who the next ones are. Well, and Laura, your point about just because things are better doesn't mean they are where they need to be is really important, because this is an issue that I've seen as an advocate where people make that argument, um, and that doesn't help folks who are dealing with inequality in one right. form or another, whether it's by gender or by race um, or by sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, just because we've made progress doesn't mean that these folks aren't having very real, that inequality today is having a very real impact on their lives. And frankly, it's people of privilege, and you know, I, <laughs> I have a lot of privilege myself. I'll, I'll acknowledge that, but I think that if you're not living it, then it's easier for you to say, well, yeah, but look at all this progress we've made. And that's where the film and arts come in. In my view, that's kind of in where I've shifted a bit. If you're not living it, you don't know about it. But if you can watch it in a film, if you can see it in an August Wilson piece, if you can access those feelings and sentiments and where they're coming from because they're not part of your world, there really is a role for the arts in that education. Yeah, absolutely. And I think speaking as a man, a guy who watched this movie, I really think it's important for men, too, to understand 
this is the reality that women have lived with and live with today. And I hope <laughs> you always want to be positive that, uh, you know, that we all have that, uh, that empathy within us to understand, okay, you know, we, we, we still have to make changes. There are, there's still a lot of inequality out there um, and it needs to be addressed. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but I did Martin Luther King famously said in the letter from Birmingham jail that when people say wait, that almost always means never. Um, justice delayed is justice denied. Um, so there is a, there's an urgency to continue to address these issues and to continue to push. Yeah, and I think you can do it. I mean, she did it in one particular way as a lawyer, which is very specific and not open to a lot of people. But I think her kind of her childhood friend, her or, or not childhood friend, but the the lawyer who's a friend of her and Marty's, um, provided a really good example of how you can act. So it was when this law firm was you know looking to hire someone, or Ruth was looking for a job, and the friend and another friend of theirs who worked at this law firm went to the hiring partner and said, "You should hire this attorney." This person, she's great. The attorney didn't listen to them, but they at least acted. They used their privilege to speak on behalf of her right. and someone else. So I think even within her world, that was a great example of what you can do. You're not going to bring a case. You're not going to need an attorney anytime soon, but you can use your privilege to speak for others. Right. And that's and so there's a tension there, too, which is, you know, it's really important to have the people who have the lived experience centered and their voices heard because they're the ones with the expertise. And then the people with privilege, people like myself, can use that in a way, like you're saying, Lauren, to, to push as well um, in whatever way we can. Well said, well said. Well, Abby, thank you for bringing the film to the cinema. Um, I'm, I'm a member, I don't know if I said that, and Andy's a member, yep. and obviously Abby's an owner. So we're all um, big supporters of the cinema and looking forward to what's next. Yeah, thank you. And looking forward to the... RBG movie that will be coming out in November. That's right. Right? On the basis of sex? Yes. November 9th, as a matter of fact, and you can bet it'll be on our list of films we hope to get. (laughs) Great. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap for episode five. Thank you to everyone who participated in this episode. Miguel Andrade, Gonas Fakimi, Abby Tierney, and Lauren Hartley-Martin. Speaking Freely is edited by Amy Giacomucci, and our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. <laughs>